0: Welcome to The Marketing Commute, a podcast that explores the roads taken and lessons learned for the best and brightest in marketing today. I'm Mike Boyd, and joining me on The Commute this time are Andrew Baxter, Senior Advisor at KPMG Australia. Hi, Mike. Professor Vince Mitchell, Professor of Marketing at the University of Sydney Business School. Hi, Mike. As well as Carmen Becker, Partner at KPMG Australia and Leader of their CMO Advisory Practice. Hi, Mike. In this episode of The Marketing Commute, we chat with Ebony Newman from New York. Ebony is the Global Chief Revenue Officer at leading branded content, social media intelligence and news agency Storyful. We're very much looking forward to chatting to her later on in the show. All right, let's roll. Okay,
1: so what's caught our eye this week? Well, I think one of the big bits of news was the fact that Twitter has banned political ads. Really, the whole push behind that was that it was about earned media rather than paid media. And I think... um, Jack Dorsey is quite happy for people to earn their stories out uh, in the marketplace, but they certainly not pay for them from a political point of view.
0: So let me just be clear on this. So a political party can't pay for advertising on Twitter, but as a candidate, I can promote my own content. Have I got that round the wrong way? No, no, you've got that <laughs> the wrong way. You <laughs> were shaking your head.
1: I'm going, oh God, I've got that round the wrong way. No, yeah, certain, you can tweet whatever you'd like to tweet. Right. You just can't put a paid ad in there. Right.
2: And that, But there is a sort of grey area around cause-based campaigning. So you can still run advertising on causes, but you can't have political candidates in that advertising. So I think there's a bit of grey there that will come out. Certainly come out. I mean, I
0: think the other, the other part of it is that it's obviously a bit of pressure to be put on Facebook to do the same thing and Zuckerberg hasn't yet um, relented but uh, you've got to think that pressure will be mounting.
2: So does it doesn't mean that um, for example we'll still get all of the Trump Twitter but we just won't get any advertising talking to us about Trump? As, as
0: I understand it yeah that would be the case because one of the interesting things is that Trump uses his own personal Twitter account far more than he does the POTUS account whereas Obama... Use the POTUS account and didn't really use his own personal Obama account. So Donald Trump can use his own personal, the real Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. to do whatever he wants, assuming that he doesn't then put any money on the table to Twitter to do so. I guess I've got a
3: problem with the fact that most all political advertising uh, is not fact-checked. Yeah, because we have people like the BBC mm, yeah. and people like who who do yeah, the fact-checking for yeah, what yeah, the regulators should actually be doing. Mm. And, and so yeah, not being able to hold entities, i.e. political parties, to account for truthfulness is a little bit better. Yeah, but, the, but it doesn't solve the problem because we've still got most of the candidates who can be sparing with the truth. Mm. So I don't think it, it really helps to clean up. But hey, is it a step in the direction? For sure.
1: It's interesting because the only time you can create false advertising in this country, in Australia, is political advertising. The ACCC ruled nearly 20 years ago it didn't have a commercial impact. Which I suppose some people could argue, but that's what the ACCC found. So, so that law still stands still now. stands today, and you so therefore you don't have to tell the truth in political advertising, but in every other form of advertising, you cannot it's 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 regulated under the under the Triple C and the Trade Practices Act that you must be truthful in your advertising.
0: But clearly the advertising needs to be very clearly defined and distinguished as a political advertisement. Yes, yes.
2: Something that really caught my eye this week was this article that I saw about the new Apple Card run by Goldman Sachs and it's been criticised for sexism which I thought was really interesting because what they did was or what they saw was they weren't allowing women to borrow the same amount as their husbands, despite having, for example, a better credit score, having the same bank account, having the same home ownership, etc. And what the accusation has been that there's sexism in the algorithm. Now, that aside, what I thought was fascinating about this was around our topic uh, that we discussed a few weeks ago around data ethics and who's looking at the ethics of the algorithm, because these are the sorts of problems that will bubble as algorithms determine outcomes for customers.
0: I think I read the same story. So a chap put in his details, so information about himself, then put his wife's details in as well. And obviously, there was a lot of shared information there. He was granted credit under the Apple card, but his wife wasn't. Mm. So really, the only distinguishing factor was obviously her birth date and her gender, because everything else was the same. It was joint bank accounts, joint home, everything else was the same.
2: As far as I understand, quite possibly he had a different salary level. I'm not sure. They didn't say that in the article, but that could be the determining factor.
0: What's
3: interesting is if there is something yeah, in females' behaviour when you look at that, yeah, then then it's probably worth going back and seeing what pieces of data led to that conclusion because it's simply a machine who's doing a job. If it's there's an assumption that's been put in there, that's more problematic, right? Because that's saying that actually somebody's making an assumption about it. But but even then, if the question is, well, A, what the assumption is, and why would intelligent people like Goldman Sachs want to put an assumption in there, that's worth unpicking. Not necessarily because it's bad, just because it is what it is, right? Yeah, so I'm really intrigued as to what causes that difference between men and women's credit rating and, and if there's any you're grounding in that and if the the grounds for that is actually a sexism thing or it's simply a piece of empirical data about what men and women you spend their money on.
2: Yeah, I imagine they would be horrified to have seen that article because I agree, I'm sure it's not the intention at all. And the problem is how, how, as you said, how does that data get inputted and what are the criteria? And also should that criteria then be made public to the applicant? How did, how did the machine decide and what right does the customer have to that information in the decision making? Because when you used to be able to call up when you didn't get your credit card, you'd call up and go, why didn't I get it? And they'd go, oh, your credit score was down because la, 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 whatever, you may have had a loan in the past or whatever it might have been. You could actually talk to someone and get that information. Can you still do that now uh, when algorithms are deciding, does the person at the end of the line in the call centre know how that decision was made and can they communicate that?
1: This week's guest is Ebony Newman, the global CRO at leading social media intelligence, branded content and news agency Storyful, which was acquired by News Corp six years ago. In 2017, Ebony was a scholar at the Marketing Academy, which is where I first met her, and she's since relocated to the US in her role at Storyful, and we're very excited to explore that journey today. Ebony Newman, welcome to the Marketing Commute. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get uh, stuck into your career, for those that don't know, can you explain to us what Storyful does and why a big media organization like News Corp would acquire
0: it?
4: Well, we define Storyful as a social media intelligence and news agency, but to put simply what we do, we're really here to help our partners understand social media better so they can be more effective. So for our newsroom partners, that's helping them be more effective in their reporting. And for brands, it's helping them understand all the risks and opportunities that come with social media these days.
0: It's interesting.
1: Many of our successful global marketers we've had on the show so far have grown up in regional Australia, and you're another one. You grew up down in Wollongong, and now you're in New York. What? There's a bit of a pattern developing. What? Why do you think that is so?
4: I think the good Aussie underdog mentality applies here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now... Uh- one thing I wanted to ask you, just in your role as um, chief revenue officer, what does the business model look like for Storyful? Because it, it seems there's multiple customer groups. You've got traditional agencies, you know, media agencies. You've got other news organisations. You've got tech companies like Facebook and Google, but not necessarily brands directly. How, how's that commercial model work?
4: We do work with brands directly, but all of those other groups you've mentioned are certainly our customers and. Obviously, those different types of customers have different workflows, so it's very different in the way in which we work with each of them. So look, for newsrooms, our key product or or model is a self-serve subscription model to our Storyful Newswire service. So what we do there is really feed verified social content into the newsroom, much like any traditional Newswire service so that reporters can use that eyewitness content or, or the UGC with certainty. But they're really set up to editorialize that type of content and, and they do it day in, day out. But for our corporate partners, we chose very strategically not to make it a dashboard or a self-serve model because almost every marketer I speak to complains of almost overload with different tools and data sets and so forth. So. Because social is so complex, we really want to act as an extension of our partners' team so that we can help them make sense of the complexity rather than add another tool to add to that problem for them. So in that sense, you know be it self-serve or the dashboard style approach for newsrooms or a bespoke um, setup to work with our partners in more of a managed service way. The outcome's much the same. It's just really making sure that we fit into the different workflows of our different clients.
0: So Ebony, what kickstarted? started What started your marketing career?
4: I really wanted to get myself into a media company because I was fascinated by that after my studies. So I actually took a sales role at News Digital Media, which at the time was in a completely different office to the rest of News Corp. And we were literally trying to convince advertisers to take a little bit of money out of TV or, or newspapers and put it into social, or sorry, digital, I should say, and try this new thing out. And I do laugh at just how far we've come, even in that time, to where we are today. And I had no intention to work in sales, but I thought I want to get my foot in the door of a media company and I can always find my way back to marketing eventually. So look, I stayed at News Corp for, I'm still here in, in a different department for over 12 years. And I think the reason is that I've had the ability to work on not only some of the best brands that news own in the market, but also I felt like I got to work with marketing teams and brands across Australia in lots of different capacities. So there was just kind of no reason ever for me to leave because I'd had such a great experience there.
0: And then at what point did your marketing career then sort of really start to accelerate? When did it take off for you?
4: I really think that rather than it being a key role or, or moment, I think for me it was those moments where I really had to shift my mindset. So probably one of the key turning points is... When you go from being an individual contributor and a technical expert and and you know something incredibly deeply to then realizing you need to be leading a team and setting a vision and you can no longer be an expert on every single thing that um, has to do with your role. So I think for me, those major points have been when I've realized what got me here won't get me there. And I've had to really hone the soft skills that would make me successful in that role as opposed to the things that when we were younger, we could roll our hands up and know every single bit of detail about.
3: Ebony, I've got a question about you know, those points of inflection in people's career journeys. Yeah, You often require a difficult decision which can be guided by a mentor. Uh, who have been yours and how have they helped?
4: firstly some really key supporters in my career who were my managers or my leaders at the time and I think I've always been good at identifying my strengths or the things that I need to work on but I think having the ability to really take a risk or put myself out of my comfort zone was something that was really great to have people that knew me and could recognize that in me and help me on in those decisions. So there's a few that stand out for me and They're all people I'm still in contact with today, and I think they've really shaped me to who I am as a leader. And Jackie Owens, who's now at Google in London, Nicola Lewis at Group M, Catherine Carter, who's now at Snap, they're all people that led me in those earlier years of my career, and I still very much thank them. I think I can see the parts of them that I've taken into my own leadership style today.
3: You said, yeah, they saw something in you. Can I ask what that was?
4: Look, I think for me, those were the moments whereby I might not have thought I was ready to take that next role, and I was happy honing my skills and preparing myself, and they were able to say, no, take the leap, you're ready to do it now.
3: So you're now in that position of providing mentorship to other people, so if you were teaching someone to drive their marketing career forward, what would be your first few lessons?
4: Andrew mentioned the Marketing Academy and I was very lucky in that process to be paired with a coach called Oscar Trimboli. and I worked with him during that program and I've continued to work with him since. I think having a coach to help me get to the place of decisions that I would have naturally gotten to eventually but it would have taken me a whole lot longer to get there. I think that was a really interesting um, addition to you know you, my armory of skills. So I think having a coach who can help you identify the ways to really sharpen what you do is is a great idea. I think as well understanding all of business. I think sometimes we get caught in some of the more functional parts of our roles. Understanding broader business objectives and being able to really articulate how what we do in our roles connects to those is really important. I think the the younger we start to hone those skills, the more effective we'll be. One of the things that alarms me the most when I talk to a lot of young people in the industry is that they don't read the news anymore. So it's crazy to me to think that some of the people we speak to get all of their information from social media. And I know I'm talking about social media here today, but I would just say, stay across the trends, make sure you understand the nuances of, you know, politics and news and all of the cultural things that impact our jobs day to day.
2: And that must be really interesting sitting where you are at the moment with a presidential campaign coming up next year. We've just seen that, for example, Twitter have banned political advertising or will be coming shortly. What's your opinion on that and what else is happening that you're seeing on the ground that we could think about here in Australia?
4: Yeah, so I think what the 2016 US election really brought to light for everyone, and not just those in the industry, was the complexity of what happens on social, but also the really scary impact that it can have if it goes wrong. And I think we're still all grappling to understand what the right answer would be to treating some of the the content that you've just mentioned, whether it's political or whether it's mis or disinformation, and balancing the concept of censorship with online safety. And I think if I had the answer to that, I would you know, be very, very lucky. And I think we're all debating that as an industry as, as to what we do. Um, so I think we realised the Richness of what happens on social is actually impacting our our daily lives. And if we take an example closer to home with the Australian election, I think based on traditional polls we would have not picked the outcome to be the way it was. But when we looked at social media, we could see the public sentiment moving towards Scott Morrison. So we're able to understand these very important things that happen in our lives in a different way by looking at social media.
1: That whole fake versus reality piece. How do you you know determine that, particularly for your newsrooms, um, your service that you're offering?
4: In the past, a brand or a newsroom could create content and have full control over how that was distributed to people. Now, anyone with a mobile phone has the ability to create content that reaches millions of people. So as a channel, there's just an opportunity for people to manipulate perception. And unfortunately, it's very often aimed at journalists. So the goal of groups of people creating manipulated content is to fool a journalist or a celebrity to retweeting it or publishing the information to get it out there. So the motivators behind it vary. Some it's ideological, whether it's the right or left trying to influence public opinion on a political matter. And Some of it's to drive ad revenue via clickbait. But I think the important thing and how we make sense of that is to understand the source of the content. So is the piece of information I'm looking at online the first variation of that? And that obviously becomes complicated when people can share information so easily and there's lots of different platforms that it emerges from. And then understanding where it's coming from and what the motivation is. It can be as simple as sharing information that is just old and out of date and needing to check wh- where that came from. So a good example in Australia is actually during the Thai cave rescue. I'm sure you will remember that story. A lot of publishers in the region were sharing videos that looked to be really authentic. It was a rescue in a cave, but it actually turned out they were from a training exercise in Wisconsin two years prior. So even with the best intent and the best reporters, we're simply tricked by seeing things that we believe to be real. And we just have to go to better measures to make sure that we're verifying everything we see. And what we always say to people is don't believe anything you see.
2: That must be complex when also thinking about user-generated content and brands wanting customers, consumers, their people that are falling in love with their brands to share that on social. So how do you balance that with, I guess, fake news?
4: As much as it is inherently a risky place to be, we know just how much we spend our lives on social. And it's certainly a wonderful place to engage with communities around like minded passions. And, you know, really, if we look at it, it's the largest set of access to humans interacting with each other on any given day. So I think when brands get it right, when they use social media to understand, how people are engaging with the topic, to look at the way in which they're speaking to each other, what language they're using, and then to really see how they're connecting with communities of people like them. It's a really great opportunity to have some authentic engagement with your customer. And I think the most obvious way that we help our customers with that is through the use of user generated content. So every day there's millions of amazing pieces of content being shared online and brands are finding a huge amount of value in seeing the content that their own consumers are creating and then repurposing that into really engaging content.
1: Because in a way, user-generated content's been around for a while. I mean, there's been TV shows that have done that branded content piece. But what what does it look like as part of the marketing mix today? Because it shouldn't necessarily just be a standalone piece. How do you see it fitting in with that wider marketing mix?
4: When we think about how we design the ways in which we connect with audiences, it should be about not thinking about where it sits within content or even a marketing mix, but how we fit into people's day and how do we capture their attention and their time because we know it's so precious. So look, we say UGC is good to use and lots of brands, I think the best examples of the use of user-generated content are travel brands. If you think of all the amazing content that Tourism Australia can leverage from people traveling around the world, it makes sense to really you know, use the content that's available to you to scale. Now, some branded content is going to be huge production costs, it's going to take time, and UGC allows you to kind of balance that to scale some of the content and think about all the different platforms that brands need to think about every day. They need more and more content than ever before. So it's really about the short-term and long-term marketing mix and how do you balance that with different ways of creating content. And I think the speed that is afforded by using content that's available to you across social is a really clever way to do that.
2: And can you give us some examples of some campaigns perhaps you've worked on or that you've seen outside of Australia that we can take a look at and that can inspire us?
4: So I think for me one of the most beautiful uses of user-generated content was a couple of years ago now, but it was the We See Equal campaign from Procter & Gamble. They were wanting to promote gender equality and Racial equality and a whole heap of the purposes that they've been known to stand for over the last few years. And if you think about talking to those topics, if you were to then go and have actors in a piece of creative to push out to people, it's by no means as authentic as capturing real people and showing that story through the eyes of real people so they've created this beautiful piece of content that captures real people not fabricated existing content that was shared on across social media and they've captured that and edited into what is a really powerful piece of content and hopefully we can share the link out to the listeners because it's definitely worth a watch
1: i wanted to ask you also about the role of technology with what you guys are doing, you know, what what's the future look like, you know, for Storyful uh, and the role of MarTech and, and, and technology?
4: My opinion, and I think certainly the opinion that Storyful shares is that technology should really be seen as a tool but not the complete answer and I think what we are actually starting to see is that a lot of our competitors and a lot of traditional MarTech companies are actually starting to bring human expertise into their offering. Because I think as we get more and more data, as we get more and more tools and pieces of technology, actually complicates our roles. And I think, uh, you know, a few years ago, we might have seen technology as a way to automate a lot of the parts of our roles, whether that was, you know, creating segments and targeting advertising more effectively. And it kind of created a bit of a short term view. And I think as we see more, you know, disparate sets of data and more platforms that we need to take care of, I think our view is to really think about is the expertise of your team set up to really make sense of all of that information and find the actionable insight from that. So really I think our view is that technology alone is not the answer. And especially when it comes to issues like mis and disinformation, they're really human problems. It's not the technology that's creating them. It's certainly allowing them to be amplified. But we kind of need the EQ of human beings to still help make sense of whatever technology is helping us to identify online.
0: So the, the ability for technology to help in its as a news gathering service, I think has got to be clearly something that is going to evolve in the next You know, three to five years. I mean, the ability of digital screens, you know, out of home media to be able to get people's attention and then drive engagement through mobile. Surely, from a news gathering point of view, that's going to be something of interest for Storyful.
4: Look, absolutely. I think the question we always ask is how do we verify content or discover the best content that's engaging people around a story? and get that in the hands of whether it's a newsroom or a marketer so that they can use that as quickly as possible and if the benefit of UGC is to help scale content then speed really needs to be at the heart of that but i think at this point in time we you know while we we will use technology to you know ingest all of the data sources we can across social to find the best content whether that's eyewitness content around a breaking news event or, you know, an engaging viral video. And technology will help us gather that quickly. It'll help us capture themes like trends and velocity. But at this point in time, we will always certainly have a human that verifies that to ensure that it's brand safe before we pushed it into a screen or a story with one of our partners.
3: Ebony, my question is about this general problem or Benefit that if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And of course, the wonderful thing about digital and social is it's highly measurable. And so, how do you actually navigate and deal with the complexity with your clients to advise them that just because you can measure it doesn't mean to say it's meaningful? Yeah, and and divert them back onto whatever it is the meaningful thing that is going to be beneficial for their business.
4: Looking at metrics and going that step further. So likes or shares or some of those more vanity quantitative measures don't necessarily tell us why someone is doing something. So what we try and get our customers to do and, you know, what we encourage anyone in the industry to do is go beyond those quant measures and really try and get to the insight. So why is my customer engaging in that? And, you know, as a secondary source of research and and market intelligence, social media can be really valuable because you're able to see in almost real time how people are behaving and engaging around a topic. And by going that step deeper to understand how it is that we can connect more effectively with an audience is far more valuable, I think, to long-term brand building than simply pushing content out to a measurable ROI for a short-term gain.
0: Marketing is a practice heading in the right direction into the future?
4: I think if there's one thing I've come to realise, it's that while technology has Made our ability to do things better, that there are a heap of issues that have arisen as a result of that. So I think we need to bring the human back into everything we do. So, you know, having a human on the team look at data and information and be able to extract insights, not looking at statistics, you know, whether it's kind of moving away from the way that we try and bucket all of our consumers into demographic assumptions and we don't really understand the psychographics and the motivations behind it all. I just think we need to continue to think about how we make our view of the customer clearer and don't sort of lean on technology to answer some of the harder questions for us all the time.
1: And and what does the road look like for you ahead?
4: for the next couple of years for me there'll be no plan to move home we're enjoying ourselves too much I'm going to double down and and really see if we can scale the story for business and continue to educate the market around some of the risks and opportunities with social but given we're coming into winter here I might change my mind when it gets freezing <laughs> I want to turn around and come home
3: So on this week's Your yeah, Marketing yeah, Minute, I've chosen a piece of my own work, yeah, which is entitled Your Data is My Data, a framework for addressing interdependent privacy infringements. Other people hold personal information about us, and therefore our privacy depends on them. The Cambridge Analytica case highlighted this and permitted personal information from more than 71 million users to be gathered because people allowed their friends' data to be shared. This happens as people often volunteer access to their contacts when downloading apps on their phone or signing into websites with their Facebook profile. To explain why we freely share others' personal information, we identified three R's. Realise, recognise and respect. Namely, people don't realise data are being transferred, they don't recognise that data belongs to others and they don't respect the fact yeah, that this information belongs to others and they only have usage, not distribution rights. To reduce this behavior, we need to educate for respect, perhaps through using automatic messages, which could be sent to all contacts, saying your data is being shared by X. With organization Y, do you consent to this? Going further, we might need more radical alternatives that shift the responsibility for privacy protection away for consumers, such as the use of more privacy-enhancing technology These can be privacy assistants which can learn users' privacy preferences and make many privacy decisions on behalf of consumers. We should even consider a new breed of potential personal data managers. A bit like financial advisors, they would assess your privacy preferences and those relating to the data of others and advise on how best to protect both parties. They could also monitor data breaches on your behalf and act to claim any damages if that were relevant and even advise on how to sell your data. So, yeah, how much of a problem do you think it is that we all click yes to permissions and give away other people's data?
2: It's interesting because... It sort of depends who's asking as to what you're willing to give away. I don't know about you, but on my iPhone, you know, you get a new iOS and it goes, just please click accept terms and conditions, which is basically giving away your privacy. And I just go, yes, because I really want to get back on my phone. Whereas when I go into a store and I buy something and then they go, are you a member of our club? I always say, absolutely not. And I don't want to be because I don't want them pestering me. So I think it's a really interesting question because it depends how it's put to you. It depends on the response that you have. And I think that's why the three R's are so important.
1: I think there's also a couple of startups I've read about overseas that are enabling you to get control back of your data and, and make sure you're you're more in control of, of what you have given permissions to and not given permissions to. and And you can see that potentially could become a very large growing offering, I think.
2: Yeah, there's one called the data wallet where that's exactly it. You sign up and then they sell your data on your behalf and you get a return for it rather than the owner of the data who you've given permission to getting return on it. Interesting and good concept.
0: And it's still so binary. It's still a yes or a no. And this may not necessarily be a good thing, but there's no fragmentation of it. There's no ability for me to say, I'm happy for this company to have this particular pieces or piece of data about me. It's an all in. It's a yes or a no. You you, you haven't got a lot of choice and that may not necessarily be a good thing, but I'm surprised that someone hasn't been able to break it down a bit more for me to be able to say, I'm happy for my name and my date of birth and my gender to be shared here, but over here, I only want my name to be shared.
2: And what scares me the most is voice, like voice data and all of the in home, you know, recording devices now who are recording word for word what we say. I mean, that is really scary because that's not just about permission to use, that's permission to listen in.
3: Yeah, and we mentioned that in in the paper, yeah, yeah, that it's those yeah passive listening devices yeah yeah are, are highly problematic because yeah, just like on your phone when you share other people's data, you didn't tell them you're going to share it. When they come mm-hmm. into your home, you don't tell them yeah, yeah the lexus kind of listening to you. Yeah, so so this I think area is not going to go away. It's only going to be more more problematic. Mm-hmm. But it's it's quite complicated because not only do you have all the different pieces, you have information that you might want to say yes or no to to different people, but it's also within your phone, and the average phone's got between two and 300 people in there. There are some people who think, yeah, I'm happy to give that data away for those people, but not for those. Mm. So, So in the paper, what we argue is that this is actually too complicated for the average consumer to deal with and we probably need to subcontract it, as we do with complicated financial decisions, Mm. to somebody who we call privacy data managers. So there's potentially a new breed of people who deal in personal data, can can make profit for you if you want to sell it Mm. or simply protect you and the people that you love from the difficulties in this area.
0: All right, that's it for this episode of The Marketing Commute. Thanks to our guest, Ebony Newman from Storyful, joining us from New York. To Professor Vince Mitchell from the University of Sydney. To Carmen and Andrew from KPMG. Our producers, Boyd Britton and Madison Lunds. The studios here at the University of Sydney Business School. And find it at KPMG's Customer Brand and Marketing Advisory Team. You can find The Marketing Commute on all good podcast networks, such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify and you can find detailed show notes and more information about our guests and our presenters at themarketingcommute.com. You can also find and follow The Marketing Commute on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. I'm Mike Boyd. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you at the next stop on The Marketing Commute. You have reached your destination.